If you've been around the last few weeks, then you'll know we've been working through an ancient document that outlines the essential beliefs of Christianity called the Apostles' Creed. I was actually first taught about the Apostles' Creed from one of our own staff members, one of my professors, uh, Dr. John Jelenic. We mentioned last week that he's been going through some medical issues recently. Uh, about a year ago, he was, uh, had a surgery to remove a brain tumor, and recently, as of last Monday, he had a second surgery. Uh, so now that surgery has, in fact, transpired, and he is recovering at home uh, he's meeting with his medical team to determine next steps. But if you would, please continue to pray for uh, Dr. J, Pastor John. Uh, this is a difficult road that he, his wife Linda, and their family are walking. So please be in prayer for them today. But he was the one who actually first taught me about this creed called the Apostles' Creed. And so why are we working through this as a church? The reason is because despite... What we hear all around us, we believe that there is a God, and we believe that there is such a thing as truth. And I believe that you are sitting and breathing this morning in this service because God wants you to know him and because he wants you to know truth. And so for some reason, however it transpired, whatever happened, you're here. You're either watching or you're here in the room. And it's all under his control and his sovereignty, and it's because he has something to communicate to you and me this morning. And I believe Jesus, when he said to his disciples in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's ultimately what this whole story is about, this Christian faith, this journey that we are on. It's about freedom, freedom from sin, freedom back into right relationship with the Father, freedom from the brokenness of this world. So the part of the creed that we're looking at today has to do with Jesus himself. This is what it reads. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, the Father's son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And a question that we've been wrestling with that this creed ultimately is trying to answer, it's a question that matters to all of us, every human being, whether they know it or not. And it is really ultimately trying to answer this. How do we know what God is like? How do we know what God is like? I would think that most of the people here and about 80% of our society say they believe in God. And most people here and just over half of our society would say that they believe in the God of the Bible. But even when people say, I believe in the God of the Bible, what that really means is, I believe in the God of my own personal interpretation of the Bible. They believe in what I like to call the PRV translation. Have you ever heard of that one before? It's the personally revised version. If you were curious, I made that up. And so did you, and that's kind of the point. Just a really lame pastor's joke this morning. Just let it sit there for a second. The point is we have this terrible tendency of conforming what God is like to our own preferred picture. We make our own caricature. I've heard this called personal space theology. Personal space theology is where the image of God ends up looking a lot like you or like me. And so my preferences, my presuppositions, my personal tastes, 
My views of justice, my views of right and wrong, of morality, of humanity, of the parts of scripture that I like and the ones that I just want to cut out, personal space theology. But when we have this approach, and sometimes it's subconscious even, God ends up being a caricature birthed out of our own imaginations. Or maybe you've bought into some picture of God that's somebody else's caricature, but it's not the God actually revealed in Scripture. I had dinner with some friends this week uh, that just returned from Rome. And one of the moments that stood out to them was when they visited the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. Michelangelo, if you've ever seen the pictures or you visited there yourself, lucky you if you have at some point in time, but 300 figures are painted on the ceiling. And you can look them up on your phone because I know all of you who are on your phones right now are in John chapter 1. I know you're not doing anything else other than being in the Word of God on, on your technology. There's no texting happening or anything else at all. But if you want to use your phone, you can look up the pictures. I'm not putting the pictures on the screens. We keep it PG here. So that's up to you. But the most well-known of this whole painting are the nine scenes at the center panels that depict the creation, the fall, and the flood. And what is so shocking is how the paintings, uh, my friend was reminding me, and he was just displaying it with such passion, that the paintings are completely enculturated. I guess I never really paid attention to it before. The paintings, they reflect the culture of Rome not the culture of the Bible. In fact, what they were doing was they were actually paying Michelangelo to try to paint the Sistine Chapel to finish this work to bring up the glory, not of God, but of Rome. And so when you look at them, who knew that all the characters of Genesis, even God himself, all look exactly like Southern Europeans living in a Roman society. God's word was painted to conform to the image of man and Rome, not the other way around. And we've been doing it all the time, too. I've heard it said like this. As soon as we try to image him, God, we limit him. In fact, many attempts to make an image of God are actually a way of trying to control him. God is not like us. Yes, we, we believe that every human being is made in his image. It's something called the Imago Dei. And because we're made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, that gives all of us incredible value and unique beauty and purpose. But that does not mean that God conforms to your image or mine. So how do we know what he's like? John answers that for us this morning in chapter 1, it's how he starts his gospel. We find this in this chapter that Jesus shines the light on God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And really what I want to spend our time doing the rest of this morning is painting a big picture of Jesus. I hope that's okay with you. Just talking about Jesus. And just letting the picture of who he is and what he's done. Soak into your soul so that you can apply that truth to your life. It's just a big grand picture of him we need on this Palm Sunday. Here's how another theologian put it uh, when we think about this idea of Jesus representing and demonstrating and showing us truly what God is life. 
One theologian said, to say that Jesus is divine does not change our understanding of Jesus. It changes our understanding of divinity. So here's how John writes it in verse 18. We'll skip down a little bit first. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the Son has made the Father known. No one has ever seen God, he says. Moses did not see God even when he sat face to face in the tabernacle. Moses, according to scripture, only saw the afterglow of divine glory passing by. Isaiah did not see God when he received the vision of the Lord on his throne. When we look into Isaiah chapter 6, it tells us that he only saw the hem of the Lord's garment. No one can fully answer what God is like, but now, John says, the only God, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus shines light on who God is. Only Jesus' life and only Jesus' teaching bring clarity to what God is like. And this gets right after the heart of the gospel. Because this big story of the gospel ultimately is saying that you and I can know God. That you can know who he is. That you can actually know what he is like. And if you think that's a dangerous and scary thing, it is. And if you think that's a wonderful and peaceful thing, it is. It's a life and death thing. It's a love and lost thing. It's a hope versus hopelessness thing. It's, it's really everything. The unknowable, unseeable, supremely holy and transcendent creator God, you can know him. And you can know him because he has made himself known and he has revealed himself most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we work through this scripture, we're simply asking ourselves, how? How does Jesus reveal God? What's this picture of Jesus, this grand image of Christ that we see in scripture that shows us what God is really like? And here's the first thing that we see, that we're able to see God known through his relationship, through the son's relationship, that is, to the father. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, it says, was the word. We looked at this last week, if you were here, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So how does John describe Jesus' relationship to the Father? The rest of the chapter lets us know that Jesus is the one that John is calling the word or the logos here. So in the beginning, before anything came to be that is, Jesus was. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was and is God. So this goes back to something we talked about as well, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. On the one hand, John says that Jesus is distinct from God. He says Jesus, the Word, was with God. But on the other hand, he equates Jesus with God. He says that the Word was God. So from the very beginning, there's always been both a distinction between Jesus and God, and there's also been a unity between Jesus and and God. And so John is not coming out with just light, fluffy theology to start his gospel. I mean, he just goes after it, repeating the very words of Genesis chapter 1, the creation account itself, and he's reframing it, he's describing it. It's like he's pulling back the curtain and giving us even more insight as we see Jesus' place within it. And so in verse 3, he says, All things then were made through him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. So the Father would say, let there be light, and the Son would bring light into existence. 
My daughter and I, uh, for the last couple of years, she's currently in fourth grade, we've been working on place values. Do you remember this in math? I realize how really unintelligent I am when I try to do fourth and third grade math. Um, my wife and I have these conversations, like, who's going to do it? And once they hit middle school, I don't even try. I'm like, there's got to be somebody on the planet that can help you, but they're not in the house. Um, so you're going to have to try to find them. So we'll talk about place values. And I don't understand the science behind it all. I just find it fascinating, and it helps me understand the immensity and the magnificence of Jesus. But, but I read that there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in known space. Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only one billionth of theoretical space. This means that there are probably something like 10 with 27 zeros behind it stars in space. It's called 10 octillion. And if you, if you like to take notes, if you have a pen, if you have a piece of paper, just write it down. Just put 10 and then write 27 zeros. Go ahead and do it. Write it right now. If you got it, 10 with 27 zeros. How many is that? I really have no idea. I know that a thousand thousands, well, that's a million, and a thousand millions, that's a billion. These are place values. A thousand billions, that's a trillion. A thousand trillions, a quadrillion. A thousand quadrillions, a quintillion. A thousand quintillions, a sextillion. A thousand sextillions, a septillion. A thousand septillions equals an octillion. Not an octopus, an octillion. 10 octillion, 10 with 27 zeros behind it. Here's what gets me. Jesus, whose words, like literal words we have in this book, who ate fish with his friends as a human being, who gave some hugs to some kids, who would teach small groups of people in local synagogues and small Jewish towns, that man, that God-man, created all of them. Ten with 27 zeros behind it, and he placed them there. Not only is he the creator of the macrocosm of the universe, which we can't even comprehend, but also the microcosm. He holds everything together, every cell in our body, every atom that is present is ultimately held together by the creator. Colossians chapter 1 puts it this way, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now all of us relate to God as his creatures, he is the creator and we are his creatures. The distinction between God and us is what defines our relationship. He is the Lord, we are his servants. He is God and we are human. He is all-knowing, we have limited understanding. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. We only think we're all-powerful when we're 14 years old and hit a new max at the gym. And then it quickly goes away. And while Jesus is fully human... He's not a created creature. He's the eternal God-man creator who made the creatures. 
Maybe you're understanding why these verses in John's gospel are some of the most debated and contentious verses in the New Testament. It's because of what they claim. It's because of what they're stating. It's because of what the word of God is claiming here. Groups like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus was the first and greatest created being, but not the creator, because that would be reserved for simply this other God. And in that, there's no longer the triune God. There's just some other God, which is no God of Christianity at all. But if he is not God, if Jesus is not God, then verse 4 cannot be true of him. Verse 4 says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now this isn't just referring to any kind of life, a type of life. Not just any life. It's saying that everything that is life... All life is in him and from him. What does that mean? It means without Jesus Christ, you will not find life. Without Jesus, you will not be enlightened. Without Jesus, the end of your story is death, the opposite of life, and darkness, the opposite of light. With Jesus... The end of your story is eternal life with and in the presence of the light of man, with Jesus himself. So the relationship between Jesus and God is that Jesus claims to be God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. This is what he says in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And these claims right there, what we're talking about, this is why so many people wanted to kill him. C.S. Lewis, the apology, uh, apologist, uh, he said it well. He said, if Jesus claims to be God or not true, then he is the greatest megalomaniac ever. He would have to be, based on what he was saying. Lewis also wrote this, there is no halfway house and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates, Lewis says, and asks, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut off your head. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. It's out of bounds. We can see from this scripture and that, that Jesus reveals God through his unique relationship with him and within the Trinity. That God is Father and he is Son and the Spirit is introduced in the same chapter in verse 32. And John hasn't unpacked all that he wants to say about the Trinity yet in these first few verses. There's, there's more to come, but I hope you'll notice John's picture of Jesus. It's not a caricature. It's the real thing. He paints this massive portrait of Jesus as the great creator God of the universe. And this picture from John chapter 1 is what has opened up the eyes and hearts of human beings for centuries and brought them into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I hope if you are not found in him through faith today, that's exactly what it's doing even now through his spirit. You can read this section of scripture a thousand times. And find that each time Jesus just gets a little bigger. A little bit bigger each time. 
It's like when Lucy came face to face with the lion Aslan in uh, Lewis's famous book, uh, children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, after not seeing him for a while, she finally comes into his presence again, and Aslan says to her, welcome, child. And Lucy replies, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. She says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is the Christian life. Every year of God's grace... After another year of God's mercy, I hope you find Christ bigger and bigger and bigger. Because when you think about this past year, perhaps, you say, you know what? When I look over the span of this last year, he's brought me through. When I look over this last year, I see his grace. You can recognize what he's done for you. You can recognize how he fought for you. You can recognize how he stayed with you. You can recognize how he loved you, how he's forgiven you, how he's comforted you, how he's never abandoned you, how he continues to forgive you, how he is with you every moment of every day. And even though he doesn't say we're not going to go through hard things, he does promise us, and we can see it when we look backwards, that when we do go through it, he's right there with us. And so when we look back and we see what he's done and we see his mercy and we see his grace, what does it do? It reminds us just a little bit each year, a little bit each day, a little bit more each week that he is bigger than we ever comprehended. This picture of Jesus, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. It'll never get stale. It'll never get too small. It'll just ever expand. Jesus is able to make God known through his relationship. And second, how does he make him known? By enlightening everyone who believes in him. Look at verse 9. The true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There are two sides to this truth. That through trusting in Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, we step into his light, and we are able to know who he is who God is as adopted children in his kingdom. But when we resist Jesus and refuse him, then we flee from the light and remain in darkness about who God is, about who we are, and about our purposes. The world did not know him. Even his own people did not receive him. And we all have asked or maybe thought the question before, how could that even be possible? You'd think that if the creator of All the creatures showed up in the creation that the creatures would acknowledge him and appreciate him. But that's not what happened. That's not what happens now. And Jesus talked about this a couple chapters later in John chapter 3. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, again referring to himself in this case. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now right now, so many people, I'm trying not to be jealous about it, but so many people from Michigan are heading to or heading back from the south where it was hot and humid 
It's like you go down to Florida and half of Michigan is there. And, you know, they left us. They left us here. They didn't invite us. They weren't generous. You know, moms and dads, I've tried this with my parents. It hasn't worked yet. But I'm like, Dad, if you're going on this trip, like, don't, don't you want to bring us and make these, chil- uh, these memories with your grandchildren? I know, I know making memories with me might not get them. But, like, don't you want to make those memories with your grandchildren? Just take us, too. So they're down there in the, in the deep south, and, and I remember going to a friend's house uh, in years past that had been empty for a while in the deep south, and once we got inside, we pulled in all of our luggage, and there's these things in the deep south that are different from up here in the north, north of Canada. And, and so, you know, you take in all your luggage, we put it down, we start flipping all the, all the lights, we go into the kitchen, we flip on all the lights, and, and there in the kitchen, when we flipped on all those lights went scattering all these creatures. But they weren't humans. They were roaches scattering in the kitchen. It's like you flip on the light and they just run. We stayed. It was okay. We just hung out with them. (laughs) The point is that they hate the light. They hate the light not because the light inherently will hurt them, but because the light exposes them. It gives them away. The world resists Jesus. They reject the light because Jesus exposes the world for the fraud that it is. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe in your journey with the Lord, it's been like the lights get flipped on and you're understanding the righteousness and the beauty and the power and the grace and the mercy and the truth of Jesus Christ, and when that light gets flipped on and you recognize your sin in his presence, your natural reaction is to run. And maybe you've just been running ever since. And so you just run and run until you're covered up in filth and dirt and sweat and tattered clothes. But maybe you finally come to the end of your journey. Maybe you're tired of running. Maybe if you've seen the movie, you're just like Forrest Gump. And he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran. And then he finally decided like he just stopped. And he said, I'm not doing this anymore. He turns around with this massive group of people following him. And he says, I'm pretty tired. I think I'm going to go home now. And that's really what the journey towards Jesus is. The light gets turned on and you're running and running and running and maybe you finally come to the end and and you're saying, okay, enough. I'm turning around. It's time to go home. That's your choice that you can make when you see the light of Christ and it reveals who God the Father is and you understand that through faith in him, you can be redeemed, forgiven, and restored and experienced real life, that, sh- that choice to turn around, that's yours to make. But I can tell you, he's calling you home. Other people, they might not run away from the light, they attack the light, they want to destroy it. That's what happened to Christ. That's why he was nailed to a cross. I've heard it said this way, it's no surprise in view of Jesus' teachings and actions that Jesus was crucified. That's no surprise. What is surprising is that it did not happen sooner. But whether you run from the light or attack it, the result is the same. You remain in darkness. 
you remain in ignorance about who God is, about who you are, about what real life and purpose look like. So this choice, it's ours today. The truth is, even if you've made the choice to follow Jesus and you've started that journey home with him, which he promises he will complete for us and in us, even then, even though we might be children of God through faith, through submitting our lives to Jesus, the way of the world has this tendency to show back up. At least it does for me. And maybe you guys have all matured to that place where you're like, yeah, I I turned around and I started heading back home and now I live in perfect obedience. The darkness never lures me away. I'm never afraid of the light anymore. For the rest of us, sometimes that light being turned on through the life of Jesus Christ still brings shame and still brings the temptation to run. And our choice is still the same as it was before. Even through faith, we can choose to run and hide. We can choose to attack. Or we can choose to turn around, pursue him, receive his forgiveness, and understand that is where rest is found. Isn't it amazing that everybody in our culture is so exhausted all the time? If you think about our culture, like, we're not hunter-gathering society anymore, at least here in this part of the world. Like, we're not out there every day saying, what are we going to eat? Need to find it, need to catch it, need to get it, need to kill it, need to cook it. We're not wondering, like, how am I going to stay warm? What am I going to do when it's too hot? What what are we going to wear? What what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Where are we going to find water? We we don't have to do that. We we literally have all of these things provided for us, and we, we do our work, but we don't have to do all that work, and yet we're exhausted all the time. It's like we're trying to carry these burdens and the light gets turned on and we've got it on our back and we're like, shoot, do you see how big this backpack is? I want to get it off, but I don't want you to see how big it is, so I'm going to run away and just keep carrying it. And Jesus is saying, my burden is light. My yoke is light. Turn around. Follow me. How does Jesus make God known? Through his relationship to God? By enlightening everyone who believes in him. Enlightening us to understand what it means to follow him. And finally and briefly, by physically making God known. Look at verse 14, a magnificent, beautiful verse as we close this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and full of truth. Some of you need to take a pen and literally circle those two words right now. What is Jesus like? Well, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of, circle it, grace. Full of what? Truth. Maybe you still think it's just this spy in the sky trying to get you. That's not Jesus. It's grace. It's truth. It's life. This means that Jesus, the word, fully God, became fully human at the same time in this verse. It's what we call the incarnation. The Son of God came and lived with us. We use the word Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It's hard to fathom this as well, to be honest, this God-man and how all this works out. I don't think I'll ever be able to figure it out and I don't think any human being ever has. Perfectly divine, fully human. 
But here's what I like to think about, just the contrast in who he is. God, think about this, God, Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, drank water because he needed to. He drank water that he created. But then in his life, he walked on top of it. God needed to sleep in a boat, rocking back and forth in the water. But then he got up and told a storm to stop. God ate tilapia out of a lake with his buddies. And then he told a whole school of tilapia to swim into their nets. God was arrested by hundreds of armed soldiers with spears. And then he put an ear back on one of them after it was cut off. God wept when he found out one of his friends died. Then he ordered that friend to walk out of his tomb. God had to repeat himself over and over again with his friends and then had a chat on top of a mountain with Moses and Elijah who had been dead for centuries. God climbed up another mountain. He physically climbed up it only when he got to the top to then float into the sky and ascend into the, into the heavens with the Father. I can sort of comprehend Jesus' divinity, and I can sort of comprehend his humanity, but what blows me away is that perfect divinity put on broken humanity and then came to live with broken humanity and chose to die for broken humanity so that broken humanity could be brought back home into the presence of perfect divinity. That's what he's done for us. That's what the cross accomplished. That's what the empty tomb provides. Jesus shines the light on God. We've seen his glory. We've experienced his grace. We've listened to his truth. He's asking you this morning, like he's asked every human being who he's interacted with throughout the centuries, will you follow me? Will you follow him? Will you run from the dark and begin running to the light? And for some of you here this morning, you need to make that decision today and say, I submit it, I'm yours. I'm going to begin giving my life to you and following your way. And even if you've done that before, many of you still need to say, yeah, I've turned around the wrong way. I'm dropping this backpack. I'm dropping the weight, and I'm following your way. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light.